Morning Pathway, how are we all going with our time at home? Uh, for all of you who've got young children, I'm praying for you because it's not easy being at home trying to fill in 12 hours of the day with little kids. I know now firsthand why the baking aisle at the supermarket is completely stripped because we all go, hmm, I could make a cake. That would fill in half an hour. And then when we decorate it, another half an hour. And then I've still got 11 hours to fill in. Better give me some more of those cake mixes so I can fill in the day. With all that is going on in the world at the moment and all of these changes and challenges that life is throwing at us, it's crept up on us a little bit this year, but Easter is just around the corner. And so this morning we're beginning the first in what will be a short series leading up to and taking us through Passion Week. And since our Christmas series last week traced some of the Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ, we thought it would be nice to follow that up with an Easter series that traced some of the Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Christ. And this morning, we're going to begin by looking at the purpose of Christ's suffering. <clears throat> now, those of you that have been around churches for years are probably thinking, oh, been there, done that, <clears throat> I know why Christ died for me. And maybe those aren't your exact words, but I know what you're thinking because it wasn't so long ago that I was sitting where you're sitting, well, maybe not in your lounge room, but I was sitting on the other side of this lectern and that's what I used to think every time Easter rolled around. I know what this is all about. <clears throat> And if your thinking is somewhere along those lines, then I want you to prove it. Prove that you know why Christ died. Not to me or to anyone else, but prove it to yourself. Go through the exercise of explaining to someone else in your own head why Christ died for you. Put yourself in the role of the Christian apologist. Imagine you've become engaged in a conversation about Easter at your workplace or with a friend or relative or with someone in the supermarket or on the bus at home. Now, I know that's not easy to imagine right at this moment in time, but let's pretend we're back in those carefree days when we would all happily go to work standing nose to nose with someone else on the train or standing in the supermarket happily chatting with people rather than rushing in and out as quickly as we could, avoiding any contact. Imagine that we're back in those times and you've become engaged with someone about Easter. And someone asks you, why did Christ have to die? How are you going to answer that question? And you might reply, well, Christ died so that we could be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life. That's what we're all taught in Sunday school, isn't it? And that's what John 3.16 says. So it must be right, right? Well, of course it's right. It's a fundamental of the Christian faith. But your inquiring friend is not entirely satisfied. And they say, yeah, but why? I mean, if he's God, he could forgive anyone he wants, couldn't he? Why did he have to die? And why did it have to be Jesus? And you think for a minute and then perhaps you mumble something about God being a holy and perfect God, 
So he can't abide with sin and there must be some sort of sacrifice to atone for sin. And perhaps you point them back to the Old Testament book of Leviticus and the details there about sacrifice to atone for sin. And then you might even quote Hebrews 10, 11 to 12, that explains that while those Old Testament sacrifices were to atone for sin, they could never take away sin. Only Jesus could do that. And you think you're doing pretty well. You think it's a good explanation. And your friend looks you in the eye and he says, yeah, but why? And all of a sudden you're stumped. Why did it have to be Jesus? And why did it have to involve his death? These are questions that people ask. And we need to be able to give an answer for our faith and it needs to be more than just a Sunday school answer. So today as we examine the purpose of Christ's death and resurrection, we're going to do it with these two questions in mind. Why did it have to be Jesus and why did he have to die? And to answer those questions, we're going to pull together all sorts of strands from all over the Bible because that's what I like doing. I like looking at the big picture and hope for, hopefully like a, a big, beautiful tapestry all these strands will stitch together to give us a clear picture at the end. Imagine standing at the foot of the cross and looking up. What would you see? You'd see a man dying by crucifixion. You'd probably notice that he's dying a horrible death and he's suffering immensely. But if you step back a little bit, and look more widely at the scene around you, you might be able to recognise that this is a good man, an innocent man. But then if you zoom right out, you'll see that the cross is just one scene. Granted, it's a very important scene. In fact, it's the pivotal scene. But it's one scene that makes up part of a, a much bigger picture. And that big picture is important, and that's what we're going to look at today. So now as we begin to pull together some of these strands that make up the bigger picture, I'm going to ask you to bear with me because some of these strands on their own don't look like much. In fact, when I give you this first scripture and I tell you that I think it is fundamental to answering these questions, why did it have to be Jesus and why did he have to die? I'm pretty sure that you'll think I've lost the plot entirely. But I'll take that risk if you're willing to bear with me. So if you haven't got a Bible in some form, either hard copy or on your phone, somewhere within reach, now would be a good time to go and grab that. Because today, without the luxury of visual aids for our live stream, things could get a little bit messy if I start jumping around through lots of scriptures and you can't follow where I'm going. So if you've got your Bibles ready, would you turn with me now to our first scripture, which is Matthew 19, 3 to 9. It's a little section of scripture, one of the teachings of Jesus that has been given the heading in many Bibles, Divorce or marriage and divorce. And that's where we're going to pick up this first strand in our big picture. 
So Matthew 19, 3 to 9. Follow along if you've got it. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Now, if I could actually see your faces today, I'm guessing I would have some blank or pretty confused faces looking back at me. But of course, in this strange new world that we're currently living in, I can't see any faces except the couple of guys sitting in front of me and they're not giving anything away. But in case you're wondering what has Jesus' teaching on divorce got to do with his death on the cross, my answer is more than you might think. Because undergirding this passage is a little nugget of truth that we need to get our heads around in order to answer those questions. Why Jesus and why did he have to die? So let's dig a little deeper and find that nugget. Let's have a look at marriage and divorce. What is a marriage? A marriage consists of promises that are made under the law. In the case of Christian marriage, that is God's law. And together, these promises that are made under the law are what we call a covenant. Now, there's a word that has some Easter connotations, right? What Jesus says to the Pharisees here in Matthew 19.9 is that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. What is implicit in that statement is that the original marriage covenant still stands. Even if a new marriage covenant is entered into with someone else, the original one still stands. That is why he calls it adultery. And Paul sheds further light on the nature of this covenantal relationship in Romans. So if you turn now to Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. Romans 7, 1 to 3. Well, do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But... If her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. And there's our nugget right there. 
for a new commandment, a new covenant to be put in place, one of the parties to the pre-existing covenant must die. Otherwise, the existing covenant still stands and both parties remain bound to it unless the purpose of that covenant has already been fulfilled. Think of a rental agreement in covenant terms. The renter agrees to pay rent to the landlord while they're living in the property. Once the renter moves on to another property, assuming that they've given due notice as specified in their contract, they're no longer bound by that covenant. Its purpose has been fulfilled and both parties are free to move on. However, when Jesus shares his last supper with his disciples and he takes the cup and he gives thanks and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, it is implicit in that statement that only death could usher in a new covenant. Why? Because the old covenant under the law still stood. The first covenant that God put in place began in Eden. And there, Adam and Eve were promised fellowship with God and eternal life. That promise was conditional on them not eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Subsequent covenants were made with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses, the priest Phineas and David, and none of these did away with the covenants that went before them. Paul explains it to the church in Galatia like this. If you'd like to turn to Galatians 3. 15 to 18. Galatians 3, 15 to 18. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. In other words, the legal covenant or the law which was given to Israel via Moses does not annul the covenant that God made with Abraham, which was passed on through Isaac and Jacob regarding blessings and descendants and the land. The original covenant with Abraham still stands because it had not yet been completely fulfilled and the creator of that covenant, who is God, is still very much alive. So then for God to replace the covenant with Moses which was the law, and all the consequences of sin, which would come under that covenant, one of the parties to that covenant had to die. And using the example from marriage that we began with, that party had to be the innocent party, the one who had not broken the covenant. Remember, while her husband was living, the woman who joined herself to another man would be called an adulteress, but if her husband dies, she's free from the law and is not an adulteress, although she's joined to another man. To usher in this new covenant required the death of an innocent party to the previous covenant, 
So God had to die. That's why God took on human form and came to earth as the man we call Jesus, the completely innocent party who would suffer and die to make a new and better promise with us. So what was that new covenant? If you'd like to turn to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 33. And I'll wait for those who are finding it. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Because of this new covenant, we have access directly to God through faith in Christ. Gone is the need for priests and the adherence to a whole suite of complex laws and the need to continually sacrifice to atone for sin committed because Christ, the innocent party to those covenants, has died. And by his death and only by his death could these covenants be replaced, freeing the Israelites from the consequences of sin committed under them and allowing us, the Gentiles, to enter into a covenantal relationship with God. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9, 15, if you want to turn there, Hebrews 9, 15, therefore he, meaning Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And so we come to this morning's passage. And I guess you probably thought I was never going to get to this morning's passage. But here we are, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 10 to 12, perhaps the best known of all the messianic prophecies known to many as the suffering servant prophecy. And we're just going to deal with the last three verses today. Isaiah 53, 10 to 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and made intercession for their transgressors. That passage begins, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Why? Why was it the will of the Lord? Hopefully you can answer that question for yourself now because this question is the same as our original questions. Why Jesus? And why 
did he have to die? He died to redeem his people from the sin committed under the first covenant so that a new covenant could be made. His soul became an offering for guilt. And it had to be Jesus because he was the only innocent party in the earlier covenant and he had to die because death was required for the terms of the old covenant to be released so that a new covenant could be made. Jesus didn't die because the Jewish authorities stirred up a scene and demanded his crucifixion. They're just the details of his death. His death was not an accident. Jesus died because it was the will of the Father. And what would be the outcome or the purpose of all of this suffering? Well, we have it in our passage today. He would see his offspring, not his natural-born descendants. Instead, by this covenant, all who were not part of the original covenant made with Israel are adopted in by grace as sons and daughters of the living God. All of us who are believers are living, walking, talking proof of the fulfilment of that part of this prophecy. He has indeed seen his offspring and we trust he'll see many more yet to come. He will also prolong his days. His death would not be the end. Jesus' days would be prolonged through his resurrection from the dead and through his kingdom that would last forever. He would prosper the will of the Lord and be satisfied. In death, Jesus accomplished the will of the Lord, that will which was his will from the very beginning, right back in the Garden of Eden, that all might have a personal relationship with God and live with him forever. That will was fully and finally accomplished at Easter and it satisfied him. It satisfied him not in some sick kind of way that people enjoy suffering. This was the satisfaction that came from seeing his plan fulfilled and for making it possible for the created ones to be reconciled with their creator. It satisfied him to save us. He would also make many to be accounted righteous and bear their iniquities. You and I stand as believers righteous before a holy God because we're parties to this new covenant, a covenant that was made, as we're reminded every time we share communion, in the blood of Christ. It's not possible for anyone to be made righteous before God in any other way. And finally, we're told he would receive a portion with the many and divide the spoil with the strong. And here we reach the triumphant final stanza of this suffering servant saga. The sense here is one of victory and of triumph, of a triumphant king returning from battle and dividing up the spoils of war and of a great multitude of people being one for Christ. You know, each one of these prophecies was fulfilled in the death and the resurrection of Christ. God was not somehow surprised when Christ was crucified. His death was not an accident of history, nor was it a standalone event in the history of mankind. Instead, the death and resurrection of Christ is interwoven into a much bigger picture that we might call the redemptive plan of God 
that began all the way back in the Garden of Eden. For even way back then, the eye of God was upon you and me as he set in motion a plan that would not fail. Life may not be quite as easy as it used to be right now, but rest assured God is in control and all who trust him as their Lord and Saviour will live together with him and share in the spoils of his great victory. If that sounds like you, then it is my prayer that this Easter you will not only marvel at the cross, but that you will take time to, to step back and to gaze in wonder at the whole picture of God's redemptive plan because it is indeed a masterpiece painted by the master. And if you haven't yet made that decision for Christ, then I urge you to make it today. Make today the day that you say yes to Jesus, put your own future beyond doubt and ensure that you are included in the rest of that great picture. Let's join together in prayer. We thank you, Lord, that we are your sons and daughters. We thank you for making a way for us. We thank you that filthy and unworthy as we are, we stand before you clean and accounted righteous because of Jesus. We thank you that you have a plan and that the fulfilment of that plan has always been completely beyond doubt. Thank you for coming. Thank you for Jesus. Amen. And so as we go our separate ways this week, may you know him more and more each day. May you grow to be more and more like him this week. And may you be a blessing in the lives of those whose paths you cross. Amen.